Well, thank you, Eric, and welcome everyone watching online today. We're glad you can be worshiping with us. My name is Jonathan Alasco. I'm the Missions and Outreach Associate at Bethany. And for the past few years, I have been working mainly with our Green Lake local outreach ministries, but have also gotten to be a part of some of our global partnerships, as well as our Ministry of Racial Justice and Reconciliation. And I first came to Bethany as a college student at the University of Washington. And four years ago when I graduated, I began working in elementary school as a bilingual paraeducator before exploring a call to ministry and coming to Bethany as an intern. And since then, Bethany has been a community that has consistently welcomed, encouraged, and affirmed me. This, this truly is my church family, my church community. And so it's a, a genuine honor and a privilege to be preaching at Bethany Green Lake for the first time. I'm excited to share with you all what I believe God is speaking to us through his word. So as we continue our time together, would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that even during these times, we can still come together as your church. We recognize that now more than ever, we need each other and are meant to follow you in community. Thank you that you continue to speak to us through, through creation, through community, and through your word. May we hear what you have to say for us today, and may we respond faithfully. It's in your name we pray. Amen. When I was in first grade, I remember one day our school librarian told our class about wearing glasses. And as I'm listening to her, I'm thinking, oh, I wish I had glasses. They seem so cool. And not too long after, we have a, an exam, an eye exam for the whole school. And the way it works is one student covers one eye and they use their other hand to move their hand to correspond with the shapes in front of them. Now, I had missed these instructions. So when it's my turn to take the exam, I'm too embarrassed to admit that I had no idea what I was doing. So I mimic what I see the other students doing around me, cover the eye, put up my hand, and I start throwing whatever signs I can think of, hoping that maybe she would not notice. She does, and I am soon referred to an additional follow-up exam in which it turns out that I found out my eyesight was horrible, and it would not have made much of a difference had I known the instructions. So I soon received my first pair of prescription glasses. Dreams really do come true. Except this dream didn't live up to the hype. According to the general consensus among popular seven-year-olds, glasses were for nerds, and this was news to me. And while at least some kids look cute when they wear glasses, I was not one of those kids. In an effort to avoid looking like a nerd, I would take my glasses and stuff them in my pocket, and they'd get all smudged up and bent. And when I'd finally wear them, they would lay across my nose all crooked-like. Not a cute look, not a cool look. Nevertheless, I remember the, the first time I wore them when I walked into the classroom, and I, I had on my glasses, and I looked around and thought, whoa, I can see everything. I don't have to sit in the front row to read the board anymore. And so the squiggly dots and the lines on the board and the blurry faces of my classmates took on a new, more accurate shape. And so at Bethany, we were going through a sermon series called The New Shape of Church. And we believe that the calling of the church is to accurately reflect the life of Jesus through his spirit within us. But what happens when our discipleship to Jesus reflects only a faint, blurry, distorted depiction of Jesus? A Jesus that we've made in our own image rather than the Jesus depicted in Scripture. In our text today, we're going to see how as disciples of Jesus, we can offer a more clear and faithful reflection of his life within us by saying yes to three invitations. An invitation to join God's healing mission, an invitation to join God's transforming mission, and an invitation to join God's peacemaking mission. 
So the passage that Eric read for us is part of a longer narrative that we're going to be looking at today, and I'm going to be summarizing each piece of that story as we go along. But for the context, uh, just so you know, the stories that we're going to be looking at today are found in Acts chapter 9, verse 32 through 1041. And in order to get a better appreciation for the significance of these stories, I want us to take a step back and consider where are we in the wider Acts narrative? So Acts begins with the description of the early church, its initial growth. And then the next section describes the church's geographic expansion to to Greek-speaking Jews. And finally, to the conversion of Saul. And so the church at this point is still primarily made up of Jewish people. But in this section of Acts that we're going to be looking at today, we're going to see how through the work of God's Spirit, the church's expansion reaches this new frontier as it begins to cross cultural divides and accept Gentiles into God's covenant family. So this passage begins with the reintroduction to the Apostle Peter. He's visiting other Christian communities in Judea when he meets and then heals this paralyzed man named Aeneas. And not too long after, a disciple named Tabitha, who is known for helping the poor, gets sick and dies. At the request of those who knew and loved her, Peter goes to her city, and she's raised from the dead. And finally, uh, Peter then stays in that city for a while. So how does this story inform our Christian discipleship? Well, discipleship seems to be a Christian term that gets thrown around a lot these days. So in order to help clarify what we mean by discipleship, I think Dallas Willard offers us a helpful definition. So Dallas Willard defines a disciple as someone who has decided to be with another person in order to do what that person does and become what that person is. So in Mark 1.17, Jesus calls Peter to follow him. He's not just inviting Peter to to hang out with him and listen to some nice stories and messages. Rather, he is inviting Peter into this ongoing journey of transformation to be with him so that he can become like him and learn to do what he did. And one of the most distinctive features of Jesus' ministry here on earth was his miracles, particularly his healing miracles. So if Peter understands discipleship to Jesus as learning to do what Jesus did, and Jesus performed healing miracles, then this healing story illustrates how Peter is reflecting Jesus by joining his healing mission, and this offers us an encouragement to do the same. Now, I'll be honest, sometimes when I'm talking about healing or even thinking about it, I get a bit uncomfortable. I do believe God continues to heal today, and it's something I continue to pray for. But there is something uniquely vulnerable and mysterious about healing that raises these challenging questions. For example, why does Peter... Why is he called to heal these particular individuals and not others who presumably also needed his healing? And why today does it seem like some people are healed when when we pray for them and others are not? I'm sure many of us have, have prayed for healing and had those prayers gone unanswered. I've also seen and experienced how certain Christians have abused this practice and developed these very problematic and even manipulative theologies of healing. So maybe some of you have a similar discomfort and tension with healing. Nevertheless, we cannot ignore the fact that the healing miracles were a part of Jesus' ministry as well as part of the ministry of the early church. I can't just dismiss God's healing ministry because it makes me uncomfortable and I can't explain it. In fact, I think it's precisely because healing has caused so much discomfort that God has invited me to engage with him about it and maybe invited some of you to seek what he's trying to say to us through the story as well as through our own stories. And so when I first read this passage in preparation for the sermon, 
There's a part where Peter, when he's healing Aeneas, he says, uh, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up, your, get up and roll your mat. And when I read these words, it made me pause because I remember this Facebook post I had recently seen that referenced those same words. And this was posted by Lisa Karens, who, who I know in, in a number of ways, but one of which through uh, Bethany Greenlake. And this post was about her brother, Stevie. And I also know Stevie because we used to volunteer at this camp called Camp Side by Side, a, a camp for families with seriously ill children. And again, this was another context that was challenging to think about healing. And so on July 28th, uh, Stevie was struck by a car while riding his bike, suffering severe injuries. And in response, his three sisters mobilized his GoFundMe page to fund his, his medical and rehab expenses. But they also created this Facebook group called Stevie's Prayer Team, and they invited me to this, this group. This group provided regular updates on Stevie's condition and asked for prayers for God's miraculous healing intervention. And it was here where I saw Lisa's post who asked that in the same way that Jesus healed the disabled man so that he would pick up his mat and walk, that God would do the same for Stevie. And I was so moved and even convicted by her faith in God's healing power and the importance of praying for healing. And like Tabitha from the story, Stevie is known for his generous heart, his acts of kindness. Like Tabitha, he's beloved by many who are deeply saddened by the situation and have come together to pray for God's healing for him. And while I still don't have a fully developed theology of healing that explains all of its mysteries, but when I witnessed the profound love and faith demonstrated by Stevie's sisters, it was as if God's spirit was telling me that in the midst of my theological wrestling with healing, I can trust that this work is rooted in God's love for us. And so even if I don't understand this mystery, I can trust that God loves us so much that there are times where he chooses to meet us in our places of physical brokenness to restore our bodies. And this alone should encourage us to pray for this. And so I asked Stevie's other sister, Stacy, who also attends Bethany, to, to have permission to share this story so that we as her church community could join them in praying for her brother and praying for their family. And because this healing will likely, this journey, this healing journey will likely be a long one, maybe you'll consider helping with that as well. If you'd like to learn more about their story, please don't hesitate to reach out to me. So Bethany is a large community, and I know that especially during a global pandemic, many of us continue to need God's healing work in our own lives and in the lives of those we care about. So I would invite you to consider letting us, as your church community, to walk alongside you by praying for your needs, whether they're healing or not. Because our staff dedicates a portion of our weekly meetings to pray for the needs of our community. And so we would be honored if you'd let us come alongside you in that. And if you sense that like Peter, you're being asked to pray for someone's healing, but you're anxious or scared or confused about it all, that's okay. Saying yes to God's healing mission is not about having all the answers. It's ultimately about reflecting God's love modeled by Jesus. So trust in God's loving spirit to work through you as he wills. Let's remember that healing isn't on our shoulders. That's God's work. Our job as disciples of Jesus is just to say, here I am, God, send me. So let's say yes to God's healing mission. And in the next section of our text today, we are introduced to the second invitation, God's transforming mission. So the story goes like this, about 30 miles north from Peter is this Roman centurion named Cornelius. He is described as a God-fearing man who helps those in need. And one day an angel appears to him and says that uh, he's acknowledged 
his, his prayers, his act of charity, and tells him to go send his men to find a man named Peter and to bring Peter back to his own house. And that's exactly what Cornelius does. So the next day, as Cornelius' men are on their way to meet Peter, Peter's hanging out on a roof praying, and he too receives a vision. And in this vision, he sees something that looks like a large sheet come down from heaven, having all sorts of animals, some of them clean for Jews to eat and some ceremonially unclean. And Peter hears this voice to command, commanding him to, to kill and eat. And Peter, recognizing this voice uh, as the voice of God, he says, whoa, 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 whoa. I've never eaten unclean food before. How am I going to start now? But God tells Peter that it's up to him to decide whether something is unclean or not. But this continually to be, is hard for Peter to accept, and he has a vision of total three times. Now, if you remember Peter from the gospel narratives, this is classic Peter, arguing and, and misunderstanding God. It, it's part of what makes him so relatable to many of us. And so right as this vision ends, Peter is st stuck, what is going on here? But then Cornelius' men arrive at his place and they, and they tell him they're looking for Peter and Peter invites him into their house. And then Peter starts making the connection between his vision and accepting, accepting Gentiles into the church community. So it can be easy for us to admit the incredible significance of this story. This event is not only one of the most significant events in all of Acts, but I think one of the most significant acts in all the Bible. From the beginning of God's story in Genesis, God intended that all humans would bear and reflect his divine image. But when humans rebelled against him, that image became corrupted and humans became enslaved to sin. So God chose one family to become a people through whom God would rescue all of creation. And through the nation of Israel, despite their many failures along the way, God would rescue all of creation. And God carried forward this mission to rescue and transform the world and which culminated and ultimately was fulfilled in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And while Jesus focused his earthly ministry, mainly in the lands of Galilee and sometimes Judea, and, and mainly to the Jewish people, he commissioned his disciples to receive his spirit and make disciples from all over the world, from all cultures, from all ethnicities. And up to this point in Acts, the new community that Jesus had launched was still limited to mostly ethnically Jewish people. But the visions that Peter and Cornelius received and the way they chose to respond to those visions catalyzed God's transformation, catalyzed God's global and multicultural mission. And so Pastor Richard often teaches us here at Bethany that all transformation in Christ is a response to revelation. So as we take a closer look at this story, let's see how each one of those elements, revelation, response, transformation, are taking place here and how we can respond faithfully in our own discipleship journeys. Let's first look at revelation. One of the striking features of this revelation to Peter was how subversive it was, especially from a first century Jewish perspective. According to Peter's religious categories, Gentiles were unclean and faithfulness to God meant keeping a safe distance from them. And as a law-abiding Jew, Peter would have never expected that God would tell him to start associating with Gentiles and even less consider any of them his spiritual brothers or sisters. And even more unexpected than all of that would be that the Gentile that would catalyze his change in his thinking would be a military leader of the very empire that's oppressing his people. But as he realizes the deeper significance of his vision, he opens himself up to the possibility that God was subverting his expectations and challenging him to let go of his religious categories and pursue a more faithful expression of discipleship. 
And we may not get these kind of game-changing revelations that change the course of church history, but God still desires to reveal his truth to us on a regular basis. Yet if we hold on too tightly to our assumptions about the methods and the content of what God's revelation should look like, then we're going to miss out on opportunities for, to be liberated from the dysfunctional patterns of thought and behavior that keep us from living the life God intended for us. So what assumptions or expectations might we be holding on to that may be preventing us from receiving God's full revelation? What would it look like for us to posture ourselves in humility and submission to receive whatever it is that God wants to receive, give to us, no matter how subversive and challenging it may be? And we should also note that God's revelation to Peter and Cornelius demanded a response. It wasn't just an opportunity for them to be filled with some abstract, mysterious knowledge about God and then continue living just as they had before. Rather, God revealed his truth in such a way that Peter and Cornelius could either accept it or ignore it. There wasn't this third option of neutrality. Either Cornelius sent men to get Peter or he didn't. Either Peter accepted God's authority over religious purity or he didn't. So as we learn to receive God's revelation to us, whether it's through scripture, creation, or community, let's not reduce them to nice stories or messages that make no demands on how we live. God's revelation demands a faithful response. Let's kind of make it a little more practical, bring it closer to home. Let's say hypothetically, during quarantine, you have gotten really into bird watching. Maybe you've bought yourself a new pair of sweet binoculars, a copy of Sibley's Field Guide to Birds of Western North America, second edition, hypothetically speaking. And one day you're at the park. You're hanging out with your new bird friends, watching the barn swallows zoom around the field. Some of them fly by your face, showing no regard for social distancing guidelines. And in this moment, you remember how God told us through Jesus to look at the birds and notice how God cares for them. And that because of his care for the birds of the sky, we can trust that he too will take care of our worries. And you sense that God may be speaking to you about a particular area of, of worry that has consumed you. Maybe it's about how you're going to find a job or, or pay your rent after being laid off. Or if you're a teacher, how you're going to navigate distance learning while uh, with a, a group of 25 rambunctious third graders. What would a faithful response to this revelation look like? Our worries may very well be legitimate, but rather than remaining in the vicious cycles of worry and stress, Jesus offers us a way forward. He invites us to consider the way that we have been enslaved to our worries and to find freedom by choosing to seek first his kingdom. So we choose to respond faithfully to God's revelation by putting our worries in their proper context and seeking first God's kingdom. And it's through these kind of responses to God's revelation that we are transformed. And finally, we should note that in this story and in others, Peter experiences God's transformation. But it's also important to recognize that his transformation, like all of ours, was an ongoing journey. So while Peter did learn to accept Gentiles into the Christian community and did advocate for their inclusion, at times he failed to uphold this commitment. In the letter to the Galatians, the Apostle Paul describes how he had to call out Peter to his face. Because at one point, Peter stopped eating with Gentiles out of fear of what some other Christians would think if they saw them. But rather than being too quick to cancel Peter as a hypocrite, this story should encourage us to be gracious with one another and ourselves as we too fail to reflect God's image at times. 
It should encourage us to see transformation as an ongoing journey that we walk alongside one another in community. People who encourage us and people who also keep us in check. So let's be people who receive God's subversive revelation, respond faithfully, and allow his spirit to transform us into the likeness of Jesus. Let's say yes to God's transforming mission. And so finally, we arrive at God's invitation to join his peacemaking mission. So Peter arrives at Cornelius' house, is met by a group of Cornelius' friends and family. So this large group of, of Gentiles. And Peter reminds everyone there that it's very frowned upon for a, a Jew to associate with Gentiles in this way. But because of the vision he recently had, he can no longer uh, describe Gentiles as unclean in the way that he used to. And so Cornelius then shares his vision to Peter. And this only further confirmed Peter's belief that God doesn't show favoritism and invites people from all nations to be a part of his covenant community. And so then Peter gives a sermon to the Gentile audience about the good news of the Jesus story. And there is a lot that can be said about uh, the significance of this story, but today I wanted to focus our attention in particularly on chapter 10, verse 36. This is the beginning of Peter's sermon where he says, you know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord over all. So what does Peter mean here by the good news of peace? Well, the Romans had a concept of peace that was achieved through economic and military dominance. They called it Pax Romana. And the Jewish Sadducees had a a version of peace, which meant uh, maintaining the status quo and cozying up to the Roman powers in exchange for political rewards. There's a group called the Zealots who believed the promise of peace was for the people of Israel only, and it would be achieved through military and political uh, liberation from their foreign oppressors. But to understand what Jesus and and Peter here means by the gospel of peace, we need to understand first what the Bible means by peace. And so the Hebrew word for for peace in the Bible is shalom. But unlike the definition of peace according to the Romans or the Sadducees, shalom is more than the absence of conflict or violence. And unlike the definition of peace according to the Zealots, shalom cannot be achieved through violent revolution. According to some scholars, shalom is more accurately defined or described as wholeness. Now, wholeness may be a familiar concept for many of us at Bethany because our mission here is to invite people to God, community, and wholeness. So I think it's a very appropriate concept for us to explore today. Peace or shalom or wholeness is who God is. It's how he acts. He wove peace into the creation of the heavens and the earth. He wove peace into our humanity so that we could become people of shalom. But because of human rebellion, shalom was shattered. And since then, God has been on a mission to restore his shalom. And this mission of shalom was most visibly embodied and fulfilled in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. In Ephesians 2.14, Paul says it this way, Jesus is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we have access to the Father by one spirit. And this is what we see happening, not just with Peter and Cornelius individually, but more broadly with the cultural and ethnic groups that they represent. Because of the death of Jesus, the dividing wall between the Jews and the Gentiles has been torn down and not Not only are they now able to make peace with God, but through the reconciliation with God, it has opened up a new possibility of peace with one another as part of the same family. 
And so as disciples of Jesus, we follow him by doing what he did, reflecting him to the world, by saying yes to this peacemaking mission. So what does peacemaking look like for us today? Well, in their book, Mending the Divides, John Huckins and Jer Swigger define peacemaking as the holistic repair of severed relationships. So we begin our peacemaking work by paying attention to the severed relationships that we see in our own lives and in the world around us. Maybe it's with a friend or the family member that we've distanced ourselves from because of political or theological disagreements. Or maybe bringing it more locally, it's, it's the current conflict in Seattle between communities of color and, and the police force. What would it look like for you, for us, to join God in seeking holistic restorative peace for the interpersonal, local, and global conflicts that we see? What would it look like for us as part of the local church to be a peacemaking community? So in an effort to better understand the the conflict and the broken relationships taking place at the U.S.-Mexico border, last December, Pastor Nathan Nelson and I, we went on a trip organized by World Relief. And along with a small group of other pastors in the country, we visited San Diego and then Tijuana to meet with and listen to the perspectives of of a border patrol agent, uh, an American pastor, and a Mexican pastor who are all deeply immersed in this conflict. And upon crossing the border into Mexico, we met asylum seekers from all over Latin America and even some from Africa who were seeking asylum, seeking refuge, and fleeing persecution and violence from their own homes. And so we listened to their stories of tragedy and desperation and even hope in the midst of it all. Together, we prayed that God would show them mercy and justice. And so as I walk to Mexico, there's this overpass and I'm walking from Mexico to the U.S., I begin reflecting on my own identity as a son of Salvadoran immigrants and try to connect my story with the stories of the asylum seekers I had just met. And so my parents had also feared for their lives when they were living in El Salvador and fled to the U.S. to find safety. And so as I'm reflecting, I feel conflicted because on the one hand, I'm really grateful to have been born in the U.S., enjoy U.S. citizenship, this life of relative safety. And yet I also feel deeply disturbed because this, my location of my birth, which I have done nothing to deserve and have no control over, has such a profound effect on the quality of life I get to enjoy and others do not. And so in this wrestling, I sense that God is speaking to me here. I'm not exactly sure what he's trying to say or how I'm supposed to respond, but I try not to let go of this. So when I come back to Seattle, I continue to to reflect on what it all meant. And so when we apply a peacemaking lens to the issues of immigration, it's important that we don't see them as something that exists far away in the borderlands. These broken relationships exist much closer than we think. So when asylum seekers are given the opportunity to make their case for asylum, they're often sent to immigrant detention centers to await their court hearing. And my mom was actually detained in one of these centers when she first came to the U.S. from El Salvador back in 1980. And so one of the largest immigrant detention centers in the country is located in Tacoma, Washington, not too far away from us. And our local partner, World Relief Seattle, has a ministry at the detention center And recently, we have partnered with them to create this guest house ministry that provides transportation, meals, and overnight stay for immigrants who are released from this detention center and who need a place to stay for the night. And so this guest house has felt like an answer to prayers for an opportunity to respond in a meaningful way to what I experienced during that border trip. And I've been so encouraged by my team of volunteer leaders and the staff who have helped make this possible. But it's also come with moments of discouragement 
Unfortunately, we haven't yet been able to host anyone yet because there have been so few releases of immigrant detainees. And I don't know how long it will be until we receive our first guest. And so in this mix of encouragement and frustration, it reflects a reality that God's peacemaking mission has already been launched by Jesus, but has yet to reach its full completion. So as we respond to the broken relationships in our lives, let's live faithfully in that tension by denouncing the sin that causes those broken relationships, but also announcing and anticipating the hope that we have for God's shalom. So in our peacemaking, we speak out against the racist rhetoric of the Latino threat narrative that dehumanizes Latin American immigrants as dirty, criminal, foreign invaders. And yet we also ask God to help us see the humanity, the dignity, the divine image in our immigrant neighbors, as well as even in those who mistreat them. And so in our peacemaking, we denounce the unfair treatment of undocumented immigrants, how we work in the buildings they construct, eat the fruits and vegetables they pick, enjoy the restaurant meals they prepare, live in the houses they clean, and worship in the church buildings they help maintain, while at the same time scapegoat them for our economic and crime issues, deny them a pathway to legal residency status, and tear them apart from their friends and family through mass incarceration and deportation raids. And at the same time, we also acknowledge our own failures, our own brokenness, our own blindness. We remember that we are all in desperate need of God's mercy, grace, and forgiveness. So we seek to remove the logs in our own eyes before helping our neighbors remove the speck in theirs. In our peacemaking, we show reverence to the God of the Bible who repeatedly declares his special love and protection for the immigrant. We take seriously God's judgment on those who oppress the foreigner. And so we contend for justice for the vulnerable immigrant among us, not by getting even or seeking revenge, but by getting creative in love. And finally, in our peacemaking, we put our hope in the one who perfectly embodies peace, Jesus, the saving King. So as disciples of Jesus, empowered by his spirit, let's anticipate that hope for peace by saying yes to God's peacemaking mission. As disciples of Jesus, we're called to reflect Jesus in our lives and even in our death. We will also reflect his resurrection when Jesus returns and fully realizes his kingdom here on earth and all people will be raised to new life. All God's people will be raised to new life in God's new heaven, in God's new earth. Here we will enjoy a new creation in which God's presence, his shalom, will dwell among us and he will wipe away every tear from our eye. There will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, because the old order of things have come, and the the old order, order has gone, and the new has come. May it be so. So what does this all mean? What does hope mean for us in the midst of our pain, injustice, and, and suffering that we face today? Well, Oscar Romero, the former Archbishop of El Salvador, and one of my favorite peacemakers can help us here. He says, our hope is that this earth, even if it is not paradise, still in some way will reflect the reality of paradise. The kingdom of God, which will be perfect only in eternity, must nevertheless be reflected here on earth. And so Bethany Community Church, let's be people who anticipate that hope, reflecting the life and the kingdom of Jesus here and now by saying yes to God's healing mission, yes to his transforming mission, and yes to his peacemaking mission. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the hope that we have in you. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus, to rescue us from our sin and to reconcile all things. We pray that you would meet us in our places of need, in particular, our places of physical need. 
We pray for my friend Stevie that you would restore his mind and body and bring comfort to him and his family. May you transform us into the likeness of Jesus. And finally, we pray that your peace, your shalom, your wholeness would repair the broken relationships in our lives, in our country, and in our world. May we join faithfully in the work that you have already started. We love you, Father. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.